0: Very good morning to you today. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Two XX. Thank you, Pat, this morning for Irish Voice. Now, uh, have you ever known a person who who suffers from stuttering? Can you imagine what it would be like to not be confident that any given thing that you said was going to not come out cleanly? I remember working a few years ago with a, a bloke, and he was smart, he was savvy, I thought, And I would say he was articulate, but he had the worst stutter I think I've ever encountered. And while it's difficult to listen to a person like that, imagine what it would be like to suffer from stuttering. Now, I got interested in this story because I watched that fabulous movie, The King's Speech, not that long ago. And I really enjoyed it. And I got curious about the question of stuttering. So we've been running a few columns in our Canberra Times, the Ask Fuzzy column about stuttering. And I got hold of a top researcher, Mark Onzo, Professor Mark Onzo, who is the Foundation Director of the Australian Stuttering Research Centre. And we did a phone interview a couple of days ago. And here he is now talking to me on the questioning of stuttering. All right, so today I'm interviewing Professor Mark Onslow, who is the Foundation Director of the Australian Stuttering Research Centre. And we are talking about stuttering. Can you imagine going into a room and not being confident that you can get your words out fluently? And of all the skills that we humans value, our ability to communicate is probably right at the top of the list. Now, Mark, let's start with a really basic question stuttering 101 can we define what stuttering actually is
1: it's when you know exactly what you want to say but uh, your speech mechanism just won't work properly for you and it doesn't come out and uh, if you if you develop that during early childhood and it stays with you um, for many years you're quite likely to have that problem all your life
0: so what are the sort of symptoms? Are there common patterns that people experience while they're stuttering?
1: Yes, there are uh, repetition of sounds, long prolongations of sounds, uh, blocking where you try to get something out and, and nothing comes out. And one of the most disfiguring parts of the disorder is uh, body movements that seem to, to look like the person is struggling to get their speech out. Facial movements, uh, body, uh, arm and, and chest movements.
0: Are those f- movements, are they directly correlated with the stuttering or are they just a byproduct of a person being frustrated?
1: No, they're, that's, the, that's the problem of stuttering, all those things.
0: Are there particular sounds that people typically have problems, like the harsh sounds, of the S's or the K's or some other letters or, or vo- vocalisations, are there things that typically trip up a stutterer?
1: Everyone who stutters has a particular sound or um, a situation that they find difficult. The A general rule is that uh, stuttering mostly occurs at the start of utterances so right at the very first moment that you're going to say something a stutter is likely to occur and that's that's what causes a lot of the problems because you just can't get started
0: Are there multiple types of stuttering? Is there, uh, can you, do you classify them according to some feature?
1: No, no um, not, not, not usually uh, there's just one disorder that we know of and there are, everyone who stutters has different signs of it and um, uh, the, the, this, the, the, the category stuttering just describes all of it it's a speech problem that can cause you lifelong trouble.
0: So, what do we know about the causes of stuttering?
1: We know that genetics is involved, and we know that the genetics causes you a, a problem with what's called neural speech processing, which is a problem where your muscles for speech just won't work when they have to work and how they have to work. They just don't function as well as other people.
0: Was this tied up with the nature of stuttering, I mean of the, the fact that speech is the evolution of parts of your body and functions that were designed originally for something else other than speech? Yes, that,
1: that, that could be argued that we evolved speech when our breathing had already evolved and um, our capacity to move our jaw for eating had already evolved and speech then after those processes had had evolved in Homo sapiens, speech arrived. And um, speaking basically combines those mechanisms for eating and breathing. And neither of them really evolved uh, to make such rapid movements. So perhaps it's not surprising that some things go wrong sometimes.
0: Well, can you take me through the pathway from, say, a thought in your brain that I going to say something through all the things that have to happen in order for you to successfully convert that into speech?
1: A great many things. Neurological impulses begin in your brain and they go through the, the, uh, the white matter in your brain and they distribute messages to muscles all around your body that control your respiration, your breathing. They control um, your, the movement of many muscles in your your throat and your mouth, and they all have to, all those signals have to make muscles move to produce three or four sounds every second. So it's extremely complicated. And um, unfortunately, if uh, for people who it, it's just not quite happening properly.
0: So what's the role of the vocal folds and all that? Did they originally or have they evolved as a speech mechanism, or are they another part of your body that's been co-opted to this?
2: So
1: vocal fo- the vocal folds or vocal cords have a biological function to keep air out of you, to keep food and other obstructions out of your airways. Um, but humans adapted them to make the basic noise that you use when you're speaking. So when you speak, um, there are muscles in your vocal cords that have to be activated and... Um, your vocal cords have to come together just at the right time so that um, uh, you can make the sounds of speech.
0: And is that coordinated with your breath, with your chest movement, your diaphragm, your lungs and so on?
1: Yes, all that. Um, It's all coordinated extremely well and extremely quickly, yeah. And fortunately most of us don't have to worry about it. It just happens. Uh, You think what you're going to say, you take a breath and your body takes over. But for people who stutter, it's not quite that simple, and they have to they have to put a lot more effort into talking than anyone else.
0: Okay, so there's a long chain of things that have to happen successfully in order to you, for you to speak properly. Mm. Where where in that chain is the problem?
1: It's um, the problem is everywhere. Uh, it, it's you can't really say that. Stuttering has one cause because uh, the the best way to think of it is a causal chain and the causal chain probably starts with a genetic issue and another part of the causal chain is that uh, some part of uh, of your, your brain that's involved with talking has a slight structural and functional problem. Another part of the causal chain is that uh, you might become anxious in a particular situation and that might cause the problem to become manifest in that particular situation. So it's it's a disorder that we call multifactorial, but fundamentally it's caused by something genetic that we don't fully understand at the moment, and it seems to cause a problem with structure and function of neurological processing of speech in the brain, and um From there, it just causes a whole lot of trouble for
0: people. Is it primarily neurological in the brain? And we'll get to the psychological overlay in a moment, but is it primarily uh, a neurological thing or does it ever relate to some physical aspect of, say, the way your muscles work in your throat or whatever?
1: Uh, It appears to... At the moment, all of the information we have suggests that it arises... um, Uh, with neurological processes, we don't say it's a neurological disorder because that's misleading because there's nothing wrong with the brains of people who stutter in the sense that there's a tumour or anything like that. It's just uh, everything is there that should be. It's just that there's a slight misfunction.
0: Right, so it hasn't quite wired up correctly.
1: That's one way of saying the wiring is not quite correct
0: now there's a strong psychological component going on here what's the interplay between the 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 wiring as we've loosely called it and the the psychological component
1: it seems that when you if you have this problem with your speech if you have it severely enough when you're when you're talking in day-to-day situations and interacting with people socially you might become anxious many people who stutter and come to clinics for help, have a problem that they are socially anxious. And uh, that probably isn't surprising at all.
0: So which, which comes first? The, is it the anxiety or the, the neurological aspect?
1: The, uh, the, the problem, the physical problem comes first. And then because of that problem, the the anxiety then develops.
0: Okay, how do you untangle cause and effect in here? Because I'm guessing you've got a tangled loop of causation going on.
1: Mm. We're we're pretty sure that anxiety isn't earlier in the causal chain um, because we know that all children who begin to stutter aren't anxious. And we know that uh, the, the, the temperament markers that foreshadow that anxiety is going to develop as a personality problem aren't present before stuttering occurs. Uh, Research has shown that pretty clearly. And so given that small children, two and three and four-year-old kids who begin to stutter, are not all anxious, and there's no sign of anxiety in them before they begin to stutter, it seems pretty obvious that uh, the problem occurs afterwards when they grow up a little bit, And if they have the problem then, uh, there are are data to show that as early uh, in preschool kindergartens they start to receive negative reactions from their peers when they're talking. And those negative reactions are known to be the sort of things in social conditioning that can cause anxiety.
0: And this anxiety, I presume, makes the suffering worse?
1: Well, yes, yes.
0: And what's the prevalence of stuttering in children?
1: Quite a lot. Um, a recent study that just came out towards the end of last year showed that uh, one in nine Melbourne children are stuttering at, nine years of age, at, at four years of age, one in nine of them, which is a lot.
0: Hmm. And what's the prevalence in adults?
1: In adults, it's, um, uh, it, we know that um, that for any adult who stutters... At some time in life, um, the, the, you, you'll have a, a 10% chance of having experienced it. But many adults who begin to stutter will recover naturally. The problem is that the natural recoveries that happen without treatment happen um, quite late in life, um, after, in, in the, during the school years or in, in seven-year-olds. And a recent study showed that... Um, One year after stuttering began in preschoolers, only uh, 6% of them, less than 10% of them, had recovered during that first year. And that's a real nuisance, because you've got to really get treatment going in the first year after stuttering uh, begins. So, unfortunately, although natural recovery does happen, it um, doesn't happen soon enough.
0: Yes, I imagine early intervention is is critical part of this.
1: It but is critical. Yeah, the most important thing is if a child begins to study, you need to see a speech pathologist so that if you need to start treatment, um, you can use a, a treatment that's been clinically proven.
0: Yes, I'd like to get into the treatment in a moment, but first I want to tell you, Mark, a short anecdote, and that was that I was recording a, a documentary piece for... The ABC and Robin Williams, no less, was in the room with me and he held the microphone under my chin as I recorded my piece and then he started asking me some questions. He started interviewing me and this is the Robin Williams who I've been listening to for many years since I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did, I stuttered. I couldn't say the word fuzzy and I had about four goes at getting that word out. Now, is that an example of a stutter?
1: It could be. uh, You could have very mild stuttering that only occurs when you're extremely anxious, or it could be just what we call normal disfluency. Most people, when they're in uh, really stressful speaking situations, will have what's called normal disfluency. It could be what you had.
0: Okay, so it's um, obviously not a full-blown stutterer. Would another example of disfluency be the use of say full uh, fill words like people say like and uh, well and are and um that's quite right a bit. Are they also examples?
1: Yeah. Most occasions when people are doing that, that's what we call normal disfluency.
0: So they are just examples of the voice filling in the space while the brain catches up? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, now let's let's talk about the treatment for children. Mm-hmm. And what are they? What's the Lidcombe program, first of all?
1: That's a simple behaviour modification treatment that's been uh, shown to be effective with randomised controlled trials, and it's what we advise parents as best practice.
0: So, how does it work?
1: It's simple behaviour modification. Parents uh, praise their children for not stuttering, and uh, the speech pathologist gives them feedback about um, about their the their kids stuttering during each day and occasionally asks them to correct stuttering as they're talking and it seems to um, it seems to be an effective approach
0: what What sort of age group are we talking about here?
1: That treatment was designed for younger than six, children younger than six years, so we like to have treatment done well and truly before six years of age because if you wait longer, it starts to become intractable, and we get a bit nervous.
0: You mean it becomes a learned behaviour?
1: No, not, not so much learned, it becomes ingrained, and in whatever's going wrong with your speech processing, that the body can't adjust for,
0: we think. Okay, so now when when the parent is making uh, praise, or giving praise to the child for not suffering, is that carry the risk that they are in fact reinforcing the presence of stuttering inadvertently in an inverse kind of way?
1: Not if you do it correctly that's why you need a speech pathologist to make sure that you do do it correctly and the child understands that you're uh, what you're doing and the child finds the experience a positive one
0: Right, and so this program is something that you give the parents instruction in and they do it at home and it becomes part of the normal life for the course of however, however long that is. is that, That's it, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Does the child... And on Fuzzy Logic, you're listening to myself interviewing Professor Mark Onslow, who's the Foundation Director of the Stuttering Research Centre, and we are talking... About stuttering, come into the clinic and with a speech. Yes, the pathologist the child
1: and the parent come into the clinic to learn how to do it. The speech pathologist teaches them. Normally, they come in once a week for a while, and they learn. And the parent and the child learn how to do it, how it's done, and basically, the parent uh, gets feedback from the, um, the the speech pathologist about how it's going, and um, usually all goes well, and the parent learns to do it well. And eventually, if the treatment goes as planned, the stuttering goes away.
0: Now, I understand that you don't necessarily have to be in the same room or even the same city or possibly even the same country.
1: No, not these days. With um, webcams on most uh, most laptop computers, you can talk to anyone anywhere in the world face-to-face and um, you can have this treatment. A clinical trial we just finished showed that you can have this treatment... Um, without actually being in the room with the speech pathologist.
0: <laughs> now, in that situation, or in any situation, is the speech pathologist watching for the visual cues as well as just the verbal ones?
1: Yes. Um, yeah, the, um, um, when people stutter, it's not only something that you can hear, um, it's something you can see also.
0: Okay, now let's just say that a child misses this treatment uh, you know, before the age of six, mm. and they go to a full adult. W- what happens then? What-, what can help them as an adult?
1: Well, then you need two types of treatment, or um, well, you may need two types of treatment. If you're an adult who stutters, you might want to find a way to control your stuttering. You might want to have that, in which case there are really effective ways to train people to speak without stuttering. And if you're an adult, as I was saying earlier, you might just be really anxious about talking and you might need what's called cognitive behaviour therapy so that you can deal with that.
0: Yes, the the program, the the first one you mentioned, is that the Camper Down program?
1: That's one way of doing it, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, a, that's, one, uh, that's the treatment that we think has the best clinical evidence because there are randomised controlled trials to show that it has some merit.
0: Right. Now you mentioned CBT or Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Mm-hmm. What is that?
1: It's a, um, it's a standard psychotherapy used around the world for social anxiety. Um, and um, basically, to cut short a long story, um, Anxiety is um, a problem with how you are thinking about the world and cognitive behaviour therapy sets that right as best as you can.
0: So is it about detecting the fact you say, having negative emotions and what triggers that and finding a way, almost Pavlovian-like, to train yourself to think differently? Is that Mm -hmm. roughly how it
3: works? Um,
1: Yes. People who are anxious about stuttering... Quite often, have a lot of thoughts in their head that are unhelpful, such as "no one will respect me because I stutter," and another common one is "people will laugh at me when I stutter." And those thoughts just can can make you really anxious. And cognitive behaviour therapy tries to get that right and to stop you thinking those thoughts.
0: It must be fairly difficult because the the truth I imagine is that there are situations where people will be shamed and and possibly laughed at, mm. so is it really an entirely irrational response
1: well to be to be diagnosed with clinically significant social anxiety you have to, the, it has to be irrational um, and, and there are people um, who stutter quite often have a diagnosis of what's called social anxiety disorder and to have that diagnosis it has to be an irrational belief for example if someone laughed at you 20 years ago and that's the only time that it ever happened and you think that it's going to happen every time you talk that doesn't seem to be realistic
0: Okay, now I imagine that for a person who's a chronic stutterer that they develop a whole bunch of strategies, some probably good and some probably not so good. Can you give us a bit of an overview of some of those? How do do people react normally to this situation?
1: Um, Well, um, there are are all sorts of helpful and unhelpful ways that people who stutter can cope with situations. um, In... um And many of those ways of of dealing with situations are helpful and many aren't helpful. And um, you probably wouldn't want to make a generalisation that would be useful.
0: Well, is uh, avoidance one of various types?
1: That is generally not going to be useful if you avoid a situation because you stutter. That's not going to help your life. Um, If there's a regularly occurring situation... uh, like talking on the telephone by and large it's not going to be helpful if you avoid
0: that mm. there was a really interesting story I read last week, and the person had the problem with the number seven mm. i couldn 't say seven yes, and that can happen yes yeah, and they got a job in a media office, and their phone number started with seven uh. <laughs> and so. <laughs> They were trying to find a way to avoid saying the way the, the word seven.
1: Mm, there's not many ways you can do that.
0: Well, well, the funny thing was that he said at one point that uh, he said, I'm, I want you to call me on this number, which is six plus one. <laughs> mm. Now, what would you say to a person in that situation?
1: Uh, I don't know. I'd have to talk to the person. Uh, I, I can't give any general advice.
0: Ah, okay, fair enough. So you need to okay, know the, like the, the circumstances of, of what they're facing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand. Now, is there a difference between boys and girls? And if so, why why that be?
1: Yeah, um, more or less the same number of them begin to stutter, but girls tend to get better um, from it more than boys. Um, and that's generally the, that's the same, that that gender... The issue is the same with all speech and language disorders. Um, the, uh, boys and men tend to get stuck with it more than girls, and there are more uh, there are more uh, men who stutter than women.
0: Do we, do we know why that is? No. Could it be the genetic component? Is it on one of the chromosomes, on the male chromosome perhaps? It could be, it could be that, uh,
1: but it's impossible to say because we just really don't know. Uh, all that much about genetic transmission but it's, it's certainly a very real effect.
0: Okay, now what sort of research are you currently doing? Because the Australian Stuttering Research Centre has got a number of researchers there, what, what sort of things are they doing?
1: At the moment uh, our, our major aim is to put all of the treatments for children and adults on the internet so that as far as possible people who who have problems with stuttering and their parents of kids who stutter can go to the internet and as much as possible they will be able to have a treatment without having to see a speech pathologist and that, hopefully that will cut down the number of people who need to see a speech pathologist. We're currently, um, if anyone listening to this wants to find out details about clinical trials that they might like to be involved in, they can send an email to us at the Australian Stuttering Research Centre.
0: Yes, I will give contact details at the end of our interview. What sort of avenues do you think there are or what possibilities for uncovering more about the cause of stuttering and, and its cures?
1: When we know the exact um, details about the genetic transmission, we'll be a lot further advanced and we'll be a lot further advanced when we can do brain imaging research on very young children so we can see exactly what's going on in their brains when they're very young.
0: Okay. now most of the people listening to our interview won't be stutterers Mm. but we will at some stage encounter someone who stutters. Yeah. What sort of approach should we have to those people?
1: The same as with anyone else. Someone who stutters might just take longer And it's like anyone who's taking longer than you would like for them to say something, that's your problem and you just have to wait.
0: (laughs) Is it poor form to complete sentences for them?
1: That's awful. I wouldn't suggest doing that to someone who stutters or to anyone. Anyone is going to be terribly annoyed if someone else fills in what they're going to say for them before they've said it. Hmm. That's not good.
0: Okay. Now... If I'm a stutterer, or if I have a family member who stutters, or I know somebody who I think needs stuttering treatment, someone close to me, mm-hmm. what sort of approach should I take?
1: You should find a speech pathologist, and you should ask the speech pathologist if uh, if that that clinician is, um, has enough has skills in treating stuttering.
0: What sort of qualifications should I look for?
1: Well, anyone who calls themselves a speech pathologist and is registered with Speech Pathology Australia has the basic background, but you really want someone who, um, who has some experience with stuttering. And if you stutter or your child stutters, you, uh, you should uh, feel comfortable asking those questions. Do you have experience with stuttering? Have you treated children who stutter like my, my, um, my son?
0: Yes, well, and I gather that for adults that um, it's impossible to really completely eliminate suffering, so it's, it's a case of managing the condition. Is that true?
1: It, yes. Um, there's, um, with, with, with preschools, with little kids, there's reason to think that um, it can well and truly be got under control and not worried about too much. But if you're an adult... You need to work at controlling it. It never goes away. It it never feels like it's gone away. And you have to work at it quite a bit to control it.
0: What got you involved in stuttering?
1: Oh, I just did a basic speech pathology career and um, I met a researcher who was very, most inspiring and that inspiration lasted my working life. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Now, thank you very much for your time, Mark. Now, do you have a website that people can go to if they want some assistance?
1: Yes, um, they can just um, Google the Australian Stuttering Research Centre and there will be an email there that inquiries can be sent to and um, we would be delighted to respond.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. Any final thoughts?
1: No final thoughts except that the most important message is that if you're a parent and your child has, has begun to stutter, or you think your child has begun to stutter, go to see a speech pathologist and uh, get the right advice because uh, if, it, if your child is stuttering and it doesn't go away, it could cause some problems later in life. And there is an excellent treatment for it at that
0: early age. Professor Mark Onslow, the Foundation Director of the Australian Stuttering Research Centre, Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Yes, and today on Fuzzy Logic we're talking stuttering and when we come back after this track, a bit of Beatles here, we're going to be talking to the president of the Australian Speak Easy Association and a man who has an interesting story about his own encounter with stuttering here on Fuzzy Logic. A little peace of mind. I hope you get a little peace of mind today here on Two X with us, Fuzzy Logic, and we're talking about stuttering. And here's an interview I recorded a couple of days ago with Mark Irwin, Dr. Mark Irwin. Okay, so now I'm interviewing Dr. Mark Irwin, who is the National President of the Australian Speak Easy Association and the chairman of the International Fluency Association, the Self-Help and Consumer Affairs Committee. And from 2001, he was the board chair of the International Stuttering Association. Hello, Mark.
2: Hello there, Rod.
0: Now, you have a history yourself with stuttering. Can you describe your own personal experience? When did you first become aware that you had a stuttering problem?
2: I started since four, and uh, made my way by hiding it and substituting and avoiding uh, and pretending ignorance when asked questions. Uh, At age 30, I was a dentist and used to seeing, well, between 10 and 16 patients per day. And I would say as little as possible, leaving it to staff to, to deal with all the phone calls and the patient interaction. And when I had begun private practice um, six years earlier, my speech was terrible. It's obviously very difficult to substitute scientific and anatomical terms uh, and display ignorance in response to a patient question. Uh, so, um, you know, that's almost as bad as uh, stuttering. Mm. Um, So, yeah, it was becoming more and more difficult for me socially from age four.
0: What's your very first memory of suffering?
2: Uh, That's a good question, but my first memory. Um, I knew I had difficulty with words fairly early. From probably about three, I found it difficult to say what... I wanted to say, and I would uh, use sort of hand gestures and things like that. I can remember doing that. I learnt <laughs> the skill of facial expressions pr- p- fairly well. Uh, I um, think I still get into some you know, strife there now because I just don't seem to be able to hide what I'm really feeling.
0: <laughs> Was there a particular occasion, an event, that brought it home to you?
2: Oh yeah, I remember once my mother in her endeavour to help me um, brought home a tape recorder. And I don't know how old I was, about five or six, and whenever tape recorders were new and it was exciting and uh, uh, in front of the family the, we were all to um, speak to the tape recorder. And I did that and then we played back the um, the sound obviously. and. I must admit that I'd been quite surprised by how disfluent I was. I hadn't realised until that stage that my stuttering was so bad. And uh, I, then I guess I began the long, long journey to find some methods to uh, hide it. My parents uh, tried uh, to get me to the speech therapy. In fact, you know, they did want me to obviously overcome it so i from about age five four maybe four uh did some speech therapy with a highly experienced speech therapist here in adelaide i did and i did that for many years with her uh not getting much better i did it again at age 12 again no success i then at that stage um well, about 18 or so, I'd begun a university course and saw, as we had to, as an early student, go and speak to or have an assessment by the university medico. And uh, I was able then to tell him about my story. He sent me to a psychiatrist and I spent time with him, uh, who then sent me on to a hypnotist hypnotherapist and that didn't didn't seem to work very well either then they sent me back to a speech therapist and that didn't work either and from those times on I can remember a, an incident I had a particularly terrible day at the dental clinic I was uh, a, a student in fourth year and i I just got married, and I guess that uh, part of that was also like a, a way to <laughs> avoid having to speak, but that's an, an episode of another long conversation, Rot. But anyway, I knew at the end of the day that it has been terrible with my speech. I couldn't deal with the patients, and particularly couldn't deal with the tutors who were assessing me. And... I had an appointment with the speech therapist organised that night. So I used that as some consolation for the fact that it has been such an awful day that I was going to go and see this therapist. And maybe this time, in spite of all the other attempts, this was going to be the session that turned my life around. <laughs> anyway, and it was a dark night and I stayed back for the hour or so after after the university had finished to go to her office. I got to her office and there was a message pinned on the wall. Dear Mark um, this is before the days of mobile phones. Uh, dear Mark I have to cancel your appointment today. Phone me on whatever the number was and um, at her home. So I remember feeling extremely depressed that I couldn't see her, but also equally depressed that I was going to have to make a your phone call. Of course, the phone calls are the, uh, were the hardest thing for me. I just wasn't using a telephone. I just couldn't get a sound out. I remember the dark night and feeling, you know, very down and very depressed and, I was getting on a train to go back to my flat, and starting to rain. And it was one of those classic images of you know things things were low, things were low, as the train just you know thumps along, and everything's cold, and nobody's talking. Anyway, I got to my flat. There was a public phone booth. Outside, Uh, I didn't have a phone on at the flat. I was only a student, so anyway, I've used the public phone. I've got the number out, and I've gone to ring it. She answers, and I can't get a sound out. I can't get a sound. I couldn't... Nothing. (laughs) Nothing came. And I waited a few minutes. I don't know who hung up first, whether I did or she did, but I just left there... Resolved never to undertake therapy again. It was just too painful an experience. It was going to be easy for me to continue to try to hide my stuttering. So, which is what I did, and I, you know, obviously had emotional issues about all of that. Which I, uh, so I, you know, did the best that I could. But it wasn't until age 30, where I, having seen 16 patients a day. 10 to 16 or thereabouts, I, I was noticing that my speech was different for every patient. It was the same conversation. Hello, Mr Smith. You know, How are you? It's a nice day. Open your mouth, whatever it was going to be. I'm, I'm going to have to do so-and-so. And it's, so it's the same conversation, it's the same day, yet my speech is different with every patient. Why was that, I thought? And then I came to realise that for me my stuttering was about my perception of the interaction with the other person not about my ability to produce speech. That was like an aha moment. And then what I did at age 30 was to set out changing my perceptions of the interaction with other people. And to the extent that I'm fluent now is to the extent that that's been successful. I, I haven't done a formal what's called a smooth speech course Uh, I have uh, enjoyed going to Maguire courses I've enjoyed the self help movement, I've um, thoroughly enjoyed the debates with speech pathologists on the subject and uh, you know the more experience of success that I've had in public speaking, I joined Toastmasters was another one and which is, uh, I guess that you know, a public speaking um, training uh, group association, I entered some competitions. And anyway, to the extent that I had success in those situations was the extent that I started to change my self-image as a speaker. I found with that became more and more fluency every year. So here I am.
0: Mark, Mark, what really strikes me about your story there is, first of all, that you are very fluent, you're having no problem, and here you are talking on the phone and we're doing a radio interview, so that does seem to say that you can go a long way to doing something about a suffering problem. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely, and that's the reason why I'm still involved, because if you listen to (laughs) other people talk about this, you will hear them say... Stuttering is largely intractable past age three. Have you heard that?
0: I've heard that it's extremely difficult and that you, in effect, just have to manage it in some way.
2: That's right. Well, I'm not managing my speech. I'm talking. I'm talking. I, I, the words just flow. I just think of something and out come the words.
0: Yes, well, I, I do uh, a lot of radio work and uh, I can assure you that even then I have trouble finding my words sometimes. I'd just like to go back to the, the beginning of your story there because you say that your mother played you the recording of yourself speaking. Yes. Now, would you say that that was a successful strategy to make you aware of your problem?
2: Well, all these things have strengths and they have some weaknesses. Uh, that gave me an awareness but at that age it was uh uh the weakness because obviously I didn't have the skills emotionally or the power to take control of the of the strategy for change. And all I could do, as any child at that age could do, would, would be to hide, would be to not talk, it would be to learn that um,
0: Would you recommend that parents in a similar situation adopt a similar approach?
2: No, 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 certainly not, certainly not. Um, I think it's instructive for me now or as I was going through the process, any speaker, any school, whatever you're trying to do a little bit better, you would obviously want to see yourself, I think, that at age four, (laughs) you don't have that understanding.
0: Well, another thing that strikes me about your story is that you had a succession of encounters or attempted help by various speech therapists. Can you describe what their approach was and and why you think that didn't work for you?
2: Well, I think because they're trying to treat the wrong disorder. Essentially, I didn't have a speech disorder. I had an anxiety disorder. That's why it didn't work. is they, they they maybe understood that I... And even if they did understand that I had an anxiety disorder, they didn't have the skills to treat that anxiety disorder. I mean, they you know, for instance, the last speech pathologist, which was when I was 40, so this is, I'm, now, I'm now 61, uh, so that many years ago... Um, knew that I'd come from a psychiatrist through that chain, I'd gone through hypnotherapy, so I guess that she's thinking, well if the psychiatrist can't help him, then I guess it's going to be down to me, and let's see if we can do something about his speech and the trouble with that is that I'm starting then to monitor or over monitor, I use an analogy to the golfing yips, or the sporting uh, yips, the phenomenon of choking, where it's known that people over-monitor their performance. And that causes an inability to do things fluently.
0: Um, by self-monitoring, is another term for that being overly self-conscious?
2: Yeah, self-conscious about performance, you know, that you want it to be perfect. Um, Self-conscious is, you know, that has different layers, but let's say that except when you've got the yips, when you've got the yips, you know you've got no control over your hands.
0: So you, you fundamentally link your stuttering problem to anxiety, is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. It's an anxiety that I, I'd be standing over the cup, say, and about to putt the shot, knowing that I'm also anxious about... I'm, I'm sort of thinking, boy, I hope I get this close. I, I know it's not going to go in the hole, but I hope I get it close enough so I don't make a fool of myself in front of the other three guys standing here.
0: Now, most of our listeners will have heard the or or seen the movie The King's Speech. Yeah. How, how do you feel about that movie?
2: Well... It's good. It, it, it's obviously, you know, funny and you know, harrowing and you know, very entertaining. But, and also increase people's sensitivity to the anxiety behind stuttering. You know, even the opening scenes when Colin Firth is sort of going up those steps, you know, you, you, it sort of gives you the image that he's going to some serious earth-shattering event. Maybe he's going to his, and that. And you see it in his, in his eyes when he's about to speak and you see it when he's stuttering. And he's, he's got no control, a bit like I was talking about with the, 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 with the putting stroke. He just got no control at all. And that awareness, I think, is important for people to understand the anxiety. Mm-hmm. But then when the film goes on, it sort of talks about the different causes or the possible things that may have been the cause. So what I found from that speech, from that from the film, is that the that the conception that everybody had, or the ideas about whatever the cause of, of stuttering uh, is, they had it confirmed by watching that film.
0: Well, I guess at its heart, like a good movie, it's telling a, an engaging story. It's not a, a medical documentary as such. And uh, my, my my strong impression is, Mark, that you. Decided, you make a conscious decision to take control of the situation as such that you could, you saw a way of doing it and then you did what you needed to get the result. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I had a vision for, I had conceptualised in my mind how I could get myself out of it in the same way that I could improve golf swing and sort of any other activity that I've been involved with in my life. Hmm. For parents who stutter, I would encourage them to help their child take the same path and obviously the first part of that is not is to um, not be or tell the child it's okay to stutter. A sporting analogy exists you know, you don't tell the child here's a golf stick, now I don't want you to slice or to hook you allow the child to make the mistakes until they get to the um, school level that they feel comfortable with I mean there's remedial classes in the numeracy and literacy at school we just don't have them in oracy and so we'll end up with all these people who stutter um, continuing to stutter because there's no there's not I don't think enough support for them and and secondly because I feel the speech pathologists have what while, while the best intention there's no doubt that they care it would seem that uh, I have not been able to get my message over as effectively as, as I would like, because was people are still being told that you know to make change is impossible if if not you know very very hard and and so forth. I believe that if I'd had a bit more you know if this path if, sorry if if I hadn't have had to self discover this, it would have been a whole lot easier. Uh, and a, a whole lot sooner I could have achieved, the, well, the degree of fluency that I'm expressing now.
0: I've been interviewing Dr Mark Irwin, the National President of the Australian Speak Easy Association and Chairman of the International Fluency Association Self-Help and Consumer Affairs Committee.
2: Okay, thanks very much
0: and uh today on fuzzy logic yes we are talking stuttering and when we come back after this track we're going to play a little clip of speech from the king george the 5th or was it the 6th anyway the king george the person who is in the uh that great movie the king's speech here on fuzzy logic a bit of classic Beatles there for you here on 2XX and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And today we're talking stuttering. Now, you remember the movie, The King's Speech? Well, the great King George, and he had a problem with his speech. Well, I, I found this bit of audio on the internet, on YouTube, and here he is doing a speech at the launch of something or other. And it's quite interesting to watch the video as he does it, because while his speech isn't that bad, but there are a few noticeable pauses in it, but he doesn't obviously stutter. But as he starts, you can see he's rocking gently backwards and forwards on his knees, and then at various points during his talk, he pauses for a great length, and then you can see his lips moving, but he's not saying anything. So he seems to know he's about to stutter, but he manages to hold on to it. And so, anyway, here's a bit of King George the VI and struggling with his speech.
3: The Queen and I are very happy to be in Scotland once more. We shall see today the completion of a great scheme whose inception we saw when we were last in Glasgow ten months ago. At that time, work on the building of the Empire Exhibition had scarcely begun. There now stands in Bella Houston Park looking out over the River Clyde a whole a whole town of more than one hundred individual uh, palaces and pavilions. this is a remarkable achievement and in recognition of it my first word uh, must be one of praise for the enterprise.
0: Yes, and there you can hear the poor King George VI struggling to get his words out. And uh, as I say, you watch the visual cues that he's giving as he does that, and he's clearly struggling at times. So that brings an end to us today for our conversation on stuttering. And today. Also, check the Canberra Times because in our Ask Fuzzy column, we are talking about dogs watching television. Yes, that's right. Do you have a dog that likes to watch the TV? And guess what? There's even a dedicated channel in the United States, an internet channel where you can watch dogs, or dogs can watch something that keeps them amused while you're out having a good time. And lots more coming up in our Ask Fuzzy column. We've got, uh, is it okay to leave your electronics turned on? Do you use up more power? We have some more follow-up stories on dementia. We have another one about stuttering, also, which is how you treat adults. And you know those sink disposal things that uh, chew up all the um, your kitchen waste, flushes it down the sink. Are they a good idea? We get an expert answer on that. Catch you later.